Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you this morning and to be worshiping together. It's already been a joy to sing with you the praises of our God and Savior, and I hope that this morning you're encouraged already in the truths that we've sung and the things that we've heard prayed and read before us. As you can tell, we're going to take a brief, brief break from the book of Revelation and our study there as Pastor Steve's away. And Revelation is one of those books that once you sort of get in a rhythm, it's tough for somebody else to jump in to that same rhythm. And so we're going to uh, return to that Revelation study in a, in a few weeks when Steve returns. And this morning, I just want to have a, a time with us in the gospel according to Mark. One of my pet peeves about the way that we talk about the gospels is we say the gospel of Mark or the gospel of Matthew is like, no, no, it's not. It's the gospel of Jesus according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, right? It's the good news of Jesus according to Mark. And as we look at this section here in Mark chapter 3, the question that essentially we're asking this morning as we read this text is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Really, chapters 1 and 2 of, of Mark have led us up to this question. In fact, it's actually started to ask this question, who is Jesus? So this is actually part two in sort of how Jesus answers that question about himself and how Mark records that for us. But before we jump into the text, let me just take a step back and say, have you ever walked into a new job or a new situation, maybe a new sports team or uh, maybe you're a new student in a class and there's all of these new people around and you're just wondering, who are all these people? Maybe you've never met them before. And what do you begin to do over the next few days or weeks as you're in that class or at that job or with that sports team? You begin to just watch and listen, right? You, you listen to what people are saying. You listen to how they're speaking. You listen to what they're saying about themselves and about others. And as we observe that, and then we, as we observe what they actually do, how they perform in that job or on that team or in that environment, we are making assessments, right? We're making value judgments. We're making discernments about who these people are around us. And some of us, we quickly come to realization that some of those people, we really don't want to spend a lot of time with. Other people were drawn to as a man, I really enjoy hanging out with so-and-so or talking with them or working with them. Why? Because they show good character or they work hard and we're drawn into this relationship with these people. And as the years and the time goes by, especially as you're laboring side by side or having fun side by side, this relationship grows and develops. And, and essentially that's where we're at in Mark chapter three. Here's the question. Who is Jesus? And the, characters in the story that Mark is presenting to us are evaluating. They are, they are evaluating both the words and the works of Jesus to answer this question, who is he? And we're going to see an interesting contrast in just a second. But as Dave already read for this morning, let me just break this down into three major sections. And we'll begin with the first one. As we begin to answer this question, who is Jesus from Mark 3, verse 7 through 12? And let me just read the text again, just to remind us of this and walk us through this. So follow along in your scripture as I read again, verses 7 through 12 of Mark 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed. And that great crowd is from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Udumea and beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon whole list of names there of different cities. We're going to see why that's important in a minute. When the great crowd 
heard all that he, that is Jesus, was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, that is those people who were possessed by these unclean spirits, these demons, they, when they saw him, here's what they would do. They would fall down before him and cry out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now, this section is a bit of a summary section, which ties us back to Mark 1 and 2 and everything that's happened so far. But then it also launches us into Mark chapter 3 and takes us all the way through this, the end of this section in Mark 6. So here's a summary of what Jesus is doing and, and what's happening around him. And just observe with me the great crowd. And it's interesting how Mark emphasizes that. It's the great crowd. More and more people are coming from the entire region. They're coming not only from the Jewish centers, the Jewish cities, but also from outside the nation. The news of Jesus is spreading everywhere virtually. And people, therefore, were coming from everywhere. Now, right before this, we don't have time to read this, but right before this, you can glance back. You can see what happened with the religious leaders. The religious leaders of the Jews have already rejected him. But the common people have not. They have not. But this crowd is coming. Why? Look at the phrase. They heard all that he was doing. They were coming primarily because of his power to heal and do miracles. And this might be slicing a nuance finally, but I think it's important that we see that. They're not coming because of his teaching. They're coming because of what he's doing. And this indicates to us that they might be more interested in his power, his stunning works, more than his words. And by implication, this raises the question for us with the crowd, who does this crowd think that Jesus really is? His fame was spreading by people talking about what he was doing, and people are hearing about what he's doing, and they're coming. If you read back through Mark 1 and 2 as well, you'll notice that in these early chapters, it's Jesus who is going to people, and it's Jesus who is reaching out to touch people. But here in chapter 3, the presentation switches. Now the people are approaching Jesus. They are coming to Jesus. They are wanting to touch Jesus. And here we have a slight insight to how the crowd may be understanding Jesus. The crowds might be answering this question, who is Jesus, better than the Pharisees and the scribes did in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Maybe the crowd is actually understanding what the demons already appear to know so clearly. There's a basic belief of the crowd that God is at work through Jesus. You know, as the gospel unfolds, we, we have these glimpses and we have these little nuances of how the story unfolds and how people's knowledge and understanding of Jesus grows. And sometimes this is a slow process. And so I'm content at this point to say the crowd, at the very least right now, is at least willing to recognize that God is at work through this man, though they may not yet fully understand who he is. But here's the implication for the crowds and for us. 
The implication is that they were primarily looking to Jesus for physical deliverance and physical healing, but they may be failing to see that their physical healing is only a part of what Jesus came to do. They may be failing to see that they're in great need of spiritual deliverance as well, that they need to turn away from their sin and actually be cleansed by Jesus. The first words of Jesus are these, repent and believe. Why? Because this is our ultimate need, is for spiritual cleansing. And Jesus says, repent and believe and follow me. The crowd should not be content with simply gathering around Jesus in a mass, but they need to begin to follow him, to be transformed, not just on the outside from their physical deformities and their physical maladies, but from their spiritual deformities and their spiritual maladies as well. The crowd is pictured here by Mark as this blind, groping, desperate people in darkness that's searching for something, for some kind of deliverance and some kind of relief. Notice those words. He tells his disciples to have a boat ready. Why? Lest they crush him. Verse 10. Because he had healed many. In verse 11, or excuse me, verse, verse 10 again. He healed them so that all of them pressed around him. It's as if the crowd is groping in the darkness looking for something. Friends, is this not a picture of us? Are we not constantly striving for some kind of relief and escape from our greatest maladies and our greatest struggles, even if it's a temporary escape? Even as Christians, sometimes we we turn back and we grope for things, we look for things, some kind of escape and deliverance. This is why we go plunging after our sin. This is why the world goes plunging after their sin, why they go headlong into the desires of the flesh and the desires of our eyes and the pride of accumulating possessions and things. Why? Because people in humanity are looking for something to give them satisfaction and escape and safety. But in our assessment, we think we know what we need, right? We know what kind of relationship we need that will satisfy. We know what kind of family we need that will give us meaning and purpose. We know what amount of money we need to retire at the level we want to retire at. We know what kind of job and career we want to pursue, even what kind of church we want to attend, with what kind of music and what kind of liturgy, just to find satisfaction and joy. But behind all of that is a failure to see our real need, our deep need, and we need to hear the voice of Jesus and submit our lives to him and his message. And in the midst of all this, Mark gives us this amazing statement. Verse 11. The demons... The unclean spirits see him, and when they do, they fall down and cry out, You are the Son of God. This is an amazing thing. The demonic spirits clearly know and understand who Jesus is. But the next few scenes that unfold in Mark 3 indicate the struggle of all humanity to come to grips with the same reality. That the demons, the unclean spirits, clearly know. The demons cry out. You are 
the Son of God. And here's the amazing thing. They are consistent in their confession of who Jesus is. Every time they see him, Mark says, the, the language is this. Any time an unclean spirit came into contact with Jesus, this is what would happen. They would fall down and cry out, you are the Son of God. They're consistent. And it happens time and time and time again. But here's the contrast. Here's the contrast. Humanity, on the other hand, is fickle. And we offer various opinions to who Jesus actually is. Humanity is full of questions and accusations and misunderstandings, and that's going to come out in the next three scenes. And here's my question to us today. Has this changed today? Or is humanity still fickle? Is humanity still asking questions, throwing accusations at Jesus, and are there still misunderstandings? And the answer is yes, humanity still offers their opinion of who Jesus is, while we adamantly try to avoid what Jesus actually said and what Jesus actually did. So this tension comes out through the remainder of chapter 3, and that's what we're going to focus on after we finish this summary statement. The people continue to come. The crowds continue to come. And at best, the crowds of the people are sorely misguided in how they answer this question. And at worst, they are damnably hard-hearted to who Jesus actually is. So look with me at Mark 3, verse 13 and 19. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12. He appointed 12. So, and here, don't miss this. So that they might be with him. And so that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James. To whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This section, I think, is meant to be here for a theological reason, right? Mark is not writing specifically in a chronological order, but he's writing in a very theological manner. And I think the reason why Mark inserts this short narrative here for us about the choosing of the twelve disciples is to help us answer the question that we're left with when we read that summary statement. And the question is this. If the world is asking the question, who is Jesus, then after Jesus leaves, how in the world will the world know who Jesus is? And this is how the world is going to know who Jesus is. It's through transformed lives of disciples. People who have been with Jesus and whose lives have been transformed by Jesus and who embrace the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus and are continuing his mission in this world. So here's the reality of these 12. Jesus is on a mission to reclaim humanity for himself. And he does it by reclaiming one sinner at a time. Even to bring Judas into this list of 12 illustrates for us that, that Jesus is not blind and unknowing to Judas's sin. In fact, he's even choosing Judas for the very purpose of fulfilling his plan of reclaiming humanity. 
He knows Judas is going to betray him, and he chooses him. Why? To be a part of this plan of redemption, to be a part of sending him to the cross. And here Jesus illustrates his total sovereignty over all salvation and all redemption, and even in who he's choosing to be near him to accomplish his plan and purpose. Twelve is also a number that, re- that carries with it an implication of what Jesus is doing. Jesus has not abandoned the people of Israel, the twelve tribes. But Jesus is creating a new humanity, a new people. One commentator says this, By naming twelve to serve in a special role, Jesus makes it clear that he's making a claim on Israel as their Lord and King. So this scene and what Jesus is doing is much more vivid than simply going out into the recess, you know, park and lining up everybody in a line and picking teams for dodgeball or ultimate frisbee. Yeah, I'll take him. Yeah, I'll take her. No, no. What Jesus is doing here, the text says he's making these 12 to do and be something unique and new. They're going to fulfill a unique role in the mission and ministry of Jesus. Jesus is reclaiming humanity. Jesus is going to answer this question about himself. Who is Jesus? By creating a new people. People's lives who are transformed and changed by him. Verse 14 and 15, we saw the purpose that Jesus gives them is this. That they might be with him. And then, so that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. The implication for these disciples and for us is interesting. Jesus planned all along his mission to work alongside transformed humanity. Jesus works with individuals one at a time to change their life and to send them on mission. He brings them to redemption and salvation through his work. Why? So he can send them out into the world to represent him and continue his mission. And Mark makes it clear that these apostles, though, have much to learn. You just continue to read through Mark, right? And you see their misunderstandings and their failures, even their sin. They need to learn what it means to represent Jesus, just like we need to learn what it means to represent Jesus as his true disciples. So how do they learn this? How do they learn what to speak? How do they learn how to act? And Jesus says, I call them to be with me. They needed to be with Jesus. To represent Jesus in the world, to properly answer the question for the world, who is Jesus, we as disciples need to learn to be with Jesus. To represent Jesus well, you must be with him, not only to learn from him, but to be transformed by him. See, discipleship starts with being with Jesus. So here's my question, friends. Are you making it a priority in your life to be with Jesus? Do you shape your daily life and schedule around being with and being transformed by Jesus? Do you immerse yourself in his thoughts and in his words and in his actions? Do you gather together with other believers 
to just mindlessly hang out? Or do your conversations at some point push one another to think and understand how we ought to live for Jesus and be transformed by him? Do you ever ask one another what you're learning about Jesus? Do you ever ask one another about what words and works of Jesus are you rejoicing in and what are changing your life? Do you ever ask one another what sin struggle you are fighting against with the power of God's redeeming grace through Jesus? See, discipleship and being a true disciple of Jesus starts simply with being with Jesus. Some of us think that's a legalistic thing to say. What? I need to spend time in the Word? What? I need to pray? Oh, that's legalistic, Matt. I just sort of live my life and I just commune with God as I think about it. No, 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 no. Jesus says to be my disciple is to lay down your life, to take up your cross, to follow me, to be with me, to make me your everything. But there's two other implications I want to bring out. And I'm so thankful for Steve Kubik's thoughts and his prayer this morning and even the focus of our songs this morning. There's two other implications. If these apostles are going to be sent out to proclaim the message of Jesus and be transformed by him, then they're going to have the authority to cast out demons like Jesus. Then here's the implication for us. And this is true. Just as it was back then, it's true for us today. The demonic realm has no power over true followers of Jesus. To be connected to Jesus is to be connected to his victory over Satan and his destructive power. So we sang about the power of the cross just a minute ago and that we have a victory in Christ. And this is so true. Yet, I wonder if we actually believe it. That if we're connected with Christ, we have victory over Satan and over all of the demonic realm. There is no satanic power. There is no demonic power. There is no sin that still holds power over us. Why? Because when we're in Christ and with Jesus as true disciples... They have no power. Romans 6 lays this out for us very clearly. The second implication is in the choice of Jesus' apostles. We don't know much about these men. We learn more as the story unfolds, but I just want to make this observation. that The men who are called by Jesus represent a wide spectrum of humanity, even in this culture. Just one example. There's... Matthew or Levi, the tax collector for Rome, and Simon, the religious zealot. These two men are on opposite ends of the spiritual spectrum and political spectrum. One is in good standing with Rome, and one is a Jewish political idealist. And here we learn that Jesus is not only reconciling humanity to God, but in Jesus, humanity is being reconciled one to another. So this section, how does this help us answer the question, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus shows us that he is transforming a people. And this is how the world today especially is going to know who Jesus is. It's by how his people represent him well on mission in words and deeds and lives and as community of believers today. The scene then moves back. To a home, Mark 3, verse 20 to 35, and this will bring us to 
the climax and the greatest conflict of this section. Let's read verses 20 through 35. So then Jesus goes home and a crowd gathers again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. His own family is saying he's a lunatic. Verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. The scribes are saying, Jesus is not really who he says he is. The scribes are saying he is a liar. And he called them to him. That is, Jesus calls the scribes to him and says to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But it's coming to an end. But no one, verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. It's a parable. And we'll talk about that in a second. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but, uh, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. He's a liar, they're saying. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So here's the statement. Just a high-level overview of this section. Here's what the people say. This is the fickleness of humanity. Even his own family says, he is out of his mind. Verse 21. At this point in the book, it's abundantly clear that there's opposition to Jesus, even from his own family. It's clear that not everyone is going to listen and obey the message of Jesus, repent, believe, and follow me. It's very clear that all humanity is not going to respond to this message the way they ought to. In chapter 2, we're sort of surprised by the way the scribes and Pharisees proclaim their hatred and their opposition to Jesus as a lawbreaker and unruly, and they begin to plot to kill him. The amazing thing is that these religious leaders, when Jesus heals somebody, they oppose him, and they're supposed to be the ones who are promoting life. But the only thing they're focused on is killing the one who gives life. Such amazing ironies in the way these stories unfold. The religious leaders of all people should know who this is. The giver of life. The Lord of life. And they want to destroy him. And here now we're surprised once again. Jesus' own family shows up with this most profound statement. He's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. He's a lunatic? Really? Can you read Mark 1 through 3 and come to that conclusion? He's a lunatic? Wait, wait, he says that he is sent from the Father, 
and he heals a paralytic man to demonstrate he has the power to forgive sins and raise him up. He heals a man whose arm is withered, and your conclusion is that he's a lunatic? The interesting thing as you're reading through the narrative is that Mark doesn't address this charge. Do you notice that? He just sort of lets it hang. And he moves on with the story. And he lets that statement sit there in our minds to contemplate. He's out of his mind? Really? What about chapters 1 and 2? Mark moves on. The the scribes who have now come down apparently further to plot how to destroy Jesus, they come in and they say, he's not only a lunatic, but he is possessed by Beelzebul, that is Satan. What's behind that statement? It's already alluded. What's behind that statement is simply their answer to the question, who is Jesus? He is a liar. They say by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. Now, Jesus doesn't let this one slide. He addresses it. He addresses it head on, but he does it in, of course, the only way that Jesus could, by telling a parable. And he begins with a question. Verse 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A house firmly divided cannot stand. Therefore, Here's the conclusion that Jesus makes by this parable. Therefore, if Satan is divided and fights against himself, he cannot stand. He's destroying himself. Now, now does that make sense to you? Does Satan want to destroy himself? I mean, Jesus' point is simple. Satan is anything but a self-destroyer. Satan is a self-promoter. Satan is a self-preserver. Go back to the garden. Go back to Eden. Go back to all of redemptive history one commentator says this satan has more sense than to destroy his own kingdom why would he be casting out his own demons who are doing his own work and destroying humanity this makes no sense and jesus says in this parable here's the reality the one who is stronger is here Jesus' presence means the defeat of Satan. Satan's kingdom, Satan's house, which is representative of the world, his dominion and his reign, where he's been free to go about and destroy lives through his power and through sin. Jesus is announcing clearly to him that your time is up. Someone greater than Satan is here. And Jesus is the one who comes in. Jesus is the strong man who is going to plunder Satan's house and is plundering Satan's house. And Jesus is the one who is retrieving Satan's prisoners and liberating them from the power of these demonic and unclean spirits. And Jesus says, like he did in chapter 1, the kingdom of God is near and Jesus is claiming humanity back for himself. Here's the reality. Jesus says, you question whether I'm a lunatic? You accuse me of being a liar, but here is what I am saying, and here's what I am demonstrating by my works. I am Lord. Jesus is Lord. 
And of course, all of these stories are pointing us forward as well to the cross and resurrection where Jesus willingly lays down his life and in the power of God is raised from the dead, ultimately bringing conquest and confirmation to his power and victory over sin and Satan. But then Jesus speaks with great sobriety. And he says in verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. That's not to say that that there's universal forgiveness. That's to imply that all sins are able to be forgiven. There's opportunity for forgiveness of all sins as you come to Christ in repentance and faith. Verse 29, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, this text has been troublesome for many because it teaches that there is a type of sin, there is a sin that cannot be forgiven. Did you notice that? Jesus says this himself. He is guilty of an eternal sin. They will never have forgiveness. So the question is this, what is this unforgivable sin? Which I think is a highly important question. And Jesus answers that question for us with great clarity and understanding in this section, though, right? He says this, Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to attribute to Satan the work that only the Holy Spirit does. And what is the work that the Holy Spirit does? The work that the Holy Spirit does is actually apply the message of the gospel and the hope of the gospel to people's lives. The Spirit is the one who removes unclean spirits. The Spirit is the one who brings transformation to a life through the power of Christ. The work of the Spirit is to reveal who Jesus is. So for someone to cry out and assign to Satan the work of the Spirit is essentially to reject who Jesus is and to reject what Jesus says and ultimately to deny the reality that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. One commentator describes it very clearly this way. The unforgivable sin is the deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus' word and act. This is the unforgivable sin, to reject Jesus. To reject his work of the Spirit. One other commentator says it this way. To blaspheme the Spirit's work which seeks to lead a person and a person to faith is unforgivable because it makes faith impossible. The Spirit is the one that brings life and faith, and only through the work of the Spirit is saving faith possible. So the unforgivable sin is to reject who Jesus is. So when Jesus says, repent and believe and follow me, this is the only unforgivable sin, is to disobey that command and to reject Christ. But here's the beauty of what's being said as well. Don't miss this. There is no other sin that fits this category. Only unbelief and rejection of Jesus. There's no other sin that fits this category. All other sin, Jesus says, can be forgiven. All other kinds of blasphemies and and words against God can be forgiven through Christ. But to reject Jesus 
entirely, that's eternally, eternally damnable. But to believe and follow Jesus is to find eternal pardon and eternal mercy and eternal grace and love in Christ. There is no other sin outside of rejecting Jesus that cannot be forgiven. So these scenes create for us a sense of great decision. An ultimate kind of decision for all of us that are here today. Whether you're a Christian or maybe you don't identify as a Christian, we still have to answer this question every day of our lives. Who is Jesus and how will we, how will we relate to him today? For Jesus says in the text, verse 33, Who are my mother and my brothers? You say my family's out there, but, but who, who really is my family? And Jesus says, here they are. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. See, submission to the commands of the Son of God, submission to the commands of Jesus, is submission to the commands of the Father. Why? Because Jesus only speaks and only does the works and the will and the words of the Father. This is the triune God. So to reject the Spirit is to reject Jesus. To reject Jesus is to reject the Father. To reject the Father is to reject the Son. To reject the Son is to reject the Spirit. This is the triune working of God. And so as we think about what it means to follow Jesus, some of us are confronted with this reality today in a very real way. For some of us here today, to follow Jesus means that we are being cut off from our family or our close friends. To follow Jesus, to submit our lives to him, obey him, means that we are actually being cut off from some of the closest relationships that we experience as humans. But Jesus says, our new identity in him is not wrapped up primarily in our biological family. But rather, Jesus' true family is defined by our spiritual allegiance and our spiritual connection to him and to one another. Again, a commentator, Daryl Bach, writes this, even the most fundamental human relationships are not as central as is loyalty to God. The most fundamental human relationships are not as important as our loyalty to God. So this is why Jesus emphasizes the importance of our life together as his followers and disciples. We, we must take seriously these words of Jesus. For many to follow Jesus and confess that he is Lord means to be rejected by their biological or maybe their religious families. For most of us, we are not cut off from our biological families to follow Jesus, though many of you, many of you even now are experiencing much family tension as you do follow Jesus. As you rightly say, and you answer this question, who is Jesus? You rightly say, he is Lord. And I know because we've talked and we've prayed together because of these, these tensions that result 
as you follow Jesus as Lord. And your family and those close to you say, no, no, he's a lunatic. No, you're a part of a cult. No, he's a liar. You're following a path of deception. And Jesus says, no, you're a part of my new family. So I encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, take comfort and take hope in these words of Jesus that this is his family and Jesus cares for his family and the Father provides for his family as we rightly answer this question and as we rightly display to the world through our words and through our works and as we rightly represent Jesus in the world that we are his brothers and sisters and mothers. We are his family. Our bond is simply one that we do the will of God. Essentially, that we follow Jesus. And amazingly enough, John says it this way, this is how the world is going to know that you're my disciples, Jesus says, that you show love one towards another in this family. Now, here's the ironic thing of all this. The world looks on this and thinks that sometimes we're lunatics. Why do you gather on Sunday mornings? Why do you do this? Why, why do you sing? Why, why do you listen to some guy stand up and open a text that's several hundred thousand years old? Years old? Why, why do you do that? You guys crazy? Don't you know that we've progressed as humanity? Don't you know that this book is outdated? Don't you know that it contains some really odd things? But as we rightly answer this question, who is Jesus? Is he a lunatic? Is he a liar? Or is he Lord? There's joy and blessing because we're brought in the family of God. And how you answer that question and how the world answers that question holds eternal consequences. And as the gospel story unfolds in Mark and throughout the scriptures, we know, we know that Jesus is the only one who can rescue us from our sin. We know that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Isn't isn't that the ironic thing, right? Uh, The demons cry out, you are the Son of God. And then they accuse Jesus of actually working for the demons. This is the comedic irony of the whole story. Don't Don't you see it? Like, they're the crazy ones. You're a demon. No, the demons cry out, you're the son of God. No, you're the demon. No, the demons cry out, you're the son of God. And here it is. Here's the reality. That in Christ, he alone can rescue. So, as we finish today, I'm going to pray and then ask the worship team to come. And we're going to rejoice and respond as you answer this question. As we answer this question today, who alone can rescue us? Only the son of God. Only the one who is the true Savior, the true Redeemer of our lives and this world. Let's pray.